You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Well, on the bright side, the win for the Rams last night put me at 6-0 on the weekend. After I thought it was so tough to pick, turns out I was right on every single one. Unfortunately, it was such a definitive Rams victory that we didn't get much of a Monday Night Football wildcard game to get into. Kyler Murray and the Cardinals running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Matt Stafford finally gets that first win. And now we look ahead to the next round. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Let's make this straight talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Fitz, the straight talk on last night was that just looked like a team, a coach, a roster that was overmatched and outplayed at every turn from the start to the finish. Well, and that is a little bit shocking, right? Because at some point, I think what we do is we assign so much brand value to quarterbacks. When you have a quarterback as good as Kyler Murray, you have a coach in Cliff Kingsbury that's supposed to be a difference maker. There were still expectations, especially as we talked about last night. When you're taking on a Rams defense that's missing key contributors in the back end of the defense, there should have been the opportunity for points to be scored. And it just... It, it lacked everything. Everything we thought might happen last night did happen. It, they lacked continuity. They lacked identity. The Cardinals seemed to have no idea what they were trying to accomplish. Like, you, were, you just watched one team get their butts whooped by another team, and it was because one team really felt from the outset like they had more aggression and more identity than the other one. Yeah, I mean, it... it... It certainly did feel like that was a hyped Rams team, but, you know, if if you rewrote the game and they didn't start out with some of the explosive plays, effective plays, maybe they aren't feeling that way, right? There's no way to say that the Cardinals might not have matched that same energy and aggression if things had gone better for them, but from the start, they just looked like they couldn't get it going. And as many folks who will point to Kyler Murray for, for some pretty major mistakes that he made, this was top to bottom of failure. And Mina Kimes was on first take today, and I think she really talked about all the different levels of failure for the Cardinals last night. We try to blame one person after a collapse like this, but This was an institutional failure. You saw a quarterback who was panicking under pressure, a head coach that I believe took too long to make adjustments when his offensive line was getting obliterated by the Rams' pass rush, and then a roster that lacked depth. And I want to key in on that and the job that Steve Kime, the GM, has done. Because all season long, when Stephen A. was putting this team on the top of his A-list and trying to sell them as a Super Bowl contender, I expressed doubt week after week because – I saw a lack of depth. You saw it on the offensive line. You saw it in the wide receiver group. You saw it in the secondary. At linebacker, going back-to-back with those off-ball linebackers who couldn't even see the field because they didn't trust them to stop the run. And that's what concerns me so much about this team going forward. I look at this roster, and I don't see them getting better, and that's a problem. Mm. That is, a, that is an indictment there, Fitz. As you know, I was really high on the Cardinals earlier in the season, and maybe I wasn't thinking enough about depth, but through the first seven games when they were leading the league and they looked fantastic and Kyler looked explosive, I think you remove DeAndre Hopkins and everything kind of falls apart. You have some injuries that affect their roster. Um, I don't know if I would be as extreme as Mina in saying that they aren't going to get better, but um, I do think that what was exposed was, was all the issues that we started to see midway through the season, which which is why I very quickly said, I don't know about this team anymore because what made me high on them before is not showing up week after week after Kyla came back from injury. Well, and I kept thinking that the ship would right itself at some point. Not, Mina makes a great point about depth, but I'll go back to 
the fact that, you know, we live in a world where Eric Weddle played 19 snaps. Like a guy that was retired until five days ago for two years out of the league right. was trusted enough to at least get on the field. And so sometimes it speaks to, uh, A, the front office in today's world. I think there's more expectation than ever on GMs to be able to quickly fill depth somehow. But then the other portion of it is for coaches to be able to simplify what they're coaching to a level that people can come in and make immediate contributions. I, I, I know what Eric Weddle did shouldn't be necessarily relied on, but I think if I'm a, if I'm a Rams fan, I'm doing a little bit of hold my beer to any thought that there are depth issues when I'm starting a game with two safeties that weren't even on the roster a week ago. Right. You know, So it just feels like that's the modern NFL season. And for whatever reason, the Cardinals were just never prepared to adjust to it. They came in and with a game plan to this entire year. And to your point, uh, once that thing started to sort of crack, you were smart enough to say, hey, I'm, I'm jumping off the ship. I kept thinking, no, th- th- this was too good early on to not normalize. And it just never did. Yeah, it, it didn't feel like there were a lot of ways um, that Kingsbury and that team reacted and and, t- you know, what we keep bringing up about your team and the Raiders, the ability to adjust when things went wrong, or even in the case of the Rams, like when they brought on OBJ, they didn't know what to be out. Uh, so it became even more necessary that they had been willing to make those moves. You just didn't see a lot of reacting from the Cardinals. And perhaps that was a belief that they would get back to the form we saw early in the year. But now this is fully a narrative. This is, this is, uh, um, a repeated thing for Cliff Kingsbury and the Cardinals to have late season collapse and not look like the team they were before. And that has a lot of people asking if this is a guy who many questioned credentials when he got the job. In fact, if you look at his uh, Texas Tech, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, he lost 5 of 6, 4 of 6, 4 of 6, 6 of 8, 6 of 8, 5 of 5. And then with the Cardinals, lost 7 of the last 9 and 19, lost 5 of the last 7 and 20, and lost 5 of the last 6 in this season. This is a guy who routinely seems not to be able to adjust when other teams figure him out. And Marcus uh, Spears was on NFL Live talking about how some of those questions about Kingsbury getting this job are back full force now. What I saw last night was a coach that was so in over his head in that moment that you have to ask yourself as an organization, are we really that far away compared to the coaches in our division? Mm. And last night was an indictment on Cliff Kingsbury more than anything. Because what we know about Kyler Murray is that Kyler Murray is an athlete. And what we know is that you break the glass in emergency situations and say, hey man, I need you to become Superman. Yeah, it ain't the, working. No, it ain't working. So for him to stand up there and say you got out, coach, obviously you did. Your quarterback had no idea about what was going on. You gave your quarterback third year, first time in the playoffs, no shot. Hmm. I mean, and that the other part of it is now we have to have the dreaded conversation about did you take enough advantage of that quarterback you gave no shot while he was on a rookie deal that pays him so little money. I mean, because mm-hmm. – Kyler Murray's going into the last year with an $11 million cap hit. Like, he's about to get, as you know, I love to say, paid, right? Like, he's going to get that bag. And if you're the Cardinals, you got to look at it and say, do we have the right people here to take advantage of it? Because now things are going to get a little trickier with roster construction and, and how they build around a quarterback that's about to have a much bigger number. Did they do enough with the quarterback they had while they had the opportunity to do it? I think this year you can look at it and say this was a failure. Yeah, uh, 
it's hard to say that when a team you know gets to 10 wins so quickly sure, and, sure, and looks fair. great and, and and also when they outperformed expectations for a lot of people um but i do think there are very serious questions facing the cardinals about their head coach situation you know we had a guest on yesterday josh weinfest to talk about this team and he said before this beatdown even happened that a lot is going to ride on this game because there are already folks who believe that maybe this isn't the guy to get the most out of this roster and this quarterback and if that was happening pregame sure as hell happening after what we saw last night Rams dominant we'll get to more on the Rams since we've got a lot more time with them or at least one more week Cardinals season done straight talk brought to you by straight talk wireless no contract no compromise speaking of the divisional round which games are we most hyped for which ones are we certain are going to go a certain way and which ones have us scratching our heads it's all coming up next you're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast All right, Super Wild Card Weekend officially behind us, which included a Super Wild Card Monday that was unfortunately a bit of a dud. I expected a lot more <laughs> from that matchup, and unfortunately we got the Cardinals of late season instead of the Cardinals of early season. And the Rams, at the very least, get through the first week, although expectations are much higher for them and for most of the remaining teams. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80, the divisional round is in front of us now, Fitz, and I said to Stosh before the show started, there's there's no duds left. There's no teams that squeezed or eked their way in. There's teams that, of course, have been there before and have higher expectations, but right down to the Bengals, you've got explosive, dangerous, powerful squads. Even the Niners, who, you know, were a wild card team, that's a squad that could really give Green Bay some trouble. So you look across the board and especially, you know, like Bills Chiefs or, or Rams Bucks, those are some matchups that um, I, I'm going to feel really bad for the team that goes home after a season like this one. I, I'm not sure that there's a matchup that's more hit or miss for me, and I'm putting all my, my chips in as the one I'm the most excited about, but also admitting it could just be wildly uncompetitive uh, between the Bills and the Chiefs. And because – the best of the Bills and the best of the Chiefs sounds like the sort of game that you want to watch a hundred times right. if you take your fan hat off. But we've also seen some of the worst of Mahomes at different times this year, and we've seen moments where the Bills looked absolutely incapable, right? So I keep thinking about how in my head I want to take what we saw last week, an explosive five touchdowns from Patrick Mahomes in basically seven seconds. He did it faster than anybody could even do it on Madden in an actual playoff game. I'm thinking about that versus Josh Allen playing the way he played against mm -hmm. New England, and that is enticing. I just have to also remind myself that that matchup could very well be the same Bills team that lost to the Jags versus the Chiefs team that at times looked incapable of right. holding on to the football. So maddening, but I think the end of the weekend could actually be the most exciting portion of it. Yeah, I agree with you. If we're going the game we're most excited for, I'm going to say it's that one. And I don't think it's likely that it will end up being teams reverting back to their lowest and worst moments of the season. I think Kansas City has progressed um, in a way that's felt – like they've built upon itself. Yeah, there's been a, a, a down moment here or there, but their defense has greatly improved since they faced the Bills earlier in the season. Patrick Mahomes' ability to take what's in front of him and what's given to him while still also taking advantage of his weapons has gotten better as the season went on. 
Um, this is a Chiefs team that I don't think is going to look back to their meeting with the Bills previously and, and take a whole lot out of it and feel bad about how things went. I think they feel like they've changed a lot. As for the Bills, there are still a few questions when it comes to balance. Um, it's really hard to take a look at last week and blame them for anything. Uh, certainly not putting uh, the team on Josh Allen's back with the way he was playing, but we didn't really get to see what they would be able to do if you force them to lead with the run. If you took away some of Josh Allen's abilities, I don't know if that's even possible based on what we saw last week, right. but there are still a couple <laughs> of questions about that balance that concerned us. Uh, Dominique Foxworth was on get up. He's also super hyped for this matchup. In fact, comparing Josh Allen to the quarterback across the way from him. Yeah, I think Josh Allen's his best is better than Patrick Mahomes. Mm. But I don't mm. think that Josh Allen can reach that on a regular basis. We saw him reach it last week. I don't imagine he'll do it again this week. Although Patrick Mahomes has to go up against those safeties who are outstanding, he's aware of that. And we've seen Patrick Mahomes time and time again be just incredible week after week after week. And with the way that the Chiefs defense mix it up, I think they will find a way to confuse um, Josh Allen from time to time. He won't play bad, but I don't think he's going to play nearly as well as he did against the Patriots. I, I got to believe that Dominique really meant to say that Josh Allen's best is better than Mahomes when he has a little heartburn or something. Like, I, we can't be talking <laughs> best on best, right? Like, there's no way. I, as much as I love Dominique, there's no way we're we're already crowning Josh Allen's best is better than Mahomes. Like, that would be, considering the amount of Hall of Fame hype that's already been out there around Mahomes since he got to the league, I can't imagine having that uh, from both sides. But I do hear what he's saying, and I think – it gets a little interesting. Uh, for me, proof of concept also matters in these situations. The deeper you get into the playoffs, the more I feel like Andy Reid's been there so many times. Patrick mm -hmm. Mahomes has been there so many times. Kelsey's been there so many times. Like This is a Chiefs team that is just it, – it, it's used to everything that you need to know. I do wonder if that plays to into fair, a game that feels so close. To be fair, they're also a team so that close. got the breaks beat off them in the Super Bowl last year. So that experience doesn't always mean something when you get to the highest level. Yeah, that is true. But, you know – also, they still have Super Bowl experience. I'm just probably positive tonight, Sarah. I know. Uh, you know. I agree with you. I'm just saying, <laughs> listen, I agree with you that if you're looking at the paper and saying, but you got Reed and Mahomes and, and Hill and all these things, I get that. But we've also seen that team not be able to hold up against a team that was built to beat them. And, of course, they've made improvements on the offensive line, but there's still some question marks. The Chiefs were far from infallible this season, even though they improved as the season went on. Same goes for the Bills, but both of them are coming off Hot games in the wild card round, which means that should be, hopefully, fingers crossed, a really great matchup. Let's talk about uh, the matchup between the Bucks and the Rams. We're, we're, we're fresh off watching the Rams demolish the Cardinals. We're fresh off Tom Brady and the Bucks, you know, easing their way through that first round without having to put up too much of a fight. But there are some concerns based on what happened to the Bucks up front in that wild card game. And Jeff Saturday talked about that on Get Up. Your center's banged up. Jensen's hurt with a sprained ankle. And Worth probably won't play. And if he does, I'm not sure how productive he'll be. By the way, when they played him the first time without Von Miller, they they harassed him 16 times. They hit him and they sacked him three times. That is when you talk about the Tampa Buccaneers and 2,000 yards of production has not been on the field in the last few weeks with injuries and, and guys getting fired. That's a big deal because that front five has played together more than anybody else in the NFL for two years. They have given Tom Brady comfort. When that comfort goes away, you are definitely have a shot at beating Tampa. 
I mean, that's it. That's the book on Brady and has been for most of his career, but particularly in the last few seasons, you beat Brady by getting pressure on him, particularly if you can get pressure without blitzing. You've still got enough guys back in coverage. If they can make him uncomfortable, if they can throw enough at him and he doesn't have that 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 uh, protection up front, that could completely change the game. Yeah, and imagine how different all of this would be if the schedule wasn't what it was because Tristan Wirfs, obviously the right tackle, that injured himself in the first-round matchup for the Buccaneers against the Eagles is in a walking boot, and they're saying that it's going to come all the way down to the wire on if he can play, right? Like, the extra day that he has to get himself healthy is a significant mm -hmm. one in this. And and then, you know, we always talk about in the NBA playoffs why matchups matter. And I, I don't know that we necessarily have always thought about the NFL the same way, but to me, that's what this feels like. You've got a Rams team that is so imposing on the defensive line and has so many stars there that play so well. And you're banged up if you're the Bucks. It feels like you're sort of catching the wrong team at the wrong time just by nature of where your injuries have fallen. Through no fault of anybody, it's just that's just the way this matchup feels like it plays. So I, I actually feel much better about the Rams, especially after they get sort of they're able to break through whatever the concept was around how they struggle or Stafford struggles. He's able to take that, just break through that ceiling and say, okay, I'm good now. Like I, I just wonder what version we get of the Rams on Sunday because of that. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, looking ahead to the divisional round. We'll have the rest of the week to talk about this as well. But the other two matchups, of course, interesting. Jimmy Garoppolo's got a shoulder issue he's got to figure out as they go on to take on the Packers. And then you've got the Titans, who have kind of flown under the radar a bit, despite being the number one seed, taking on a very hot Joe Burrow and the Bengals. Both of those could be pretty good fits. Yeah, and I think that Burrow and the weapons that they have, it's going to be really interesting because Derrick Henry's going to be back for the Titans, right? So... What does the Titans offense even look like? If anybody tells you they know, I think we're all just sort of pulling out of our rear ends. Like, we have an idea of what we would expect, but Derrick Henry hasn't taken a hit. We have no idea. And this is a Bengals team that's so stinking explosive. But also, at times, the Raiders made that game look ugly. The Titans are equally capable of making a game look ugly. So, what version of the offense? Because I think the Bengals are going to have to be more efficient offensively than they were particularly in the second half against the Raiders if they want to beat the Titans. But I do think they can beat the Titans. Yeah, I'm, the Titans are such a mystery to me. I've wavered all season long about them um, and, and really had trouble getting a read on them. And, and the Bengals as well early on, although of late the Bengals certainly have come on strong enough to have more than earned the respect that they've gotten and the hype that they're getting heading into this matchup. The other game... We're going to get a little deeper into now. We're going to talk specifically about a Packers team that's been waiting, sitting in wait for their opportunity to get what looks like it could be a very deep run started. And Fitz, I, I had someone telling me today, I've got a big bet on the Packers not winning at all. Can you tell me that they won't? And I was like, I sure can't. They look pretty darn good. Uh, we're going to find out just how good they look, how ready they are. Coming up next, Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Commercial insurance through Progressive protects your business and your dream. Choose from over 30 coverage options at ProgressiveCommercial.com. All right, we need to get some insight. I don't know why I decided I'd go. Yeah, what was for, that? I don't morning, know. I just, morning was, zoo garbage over there. Just having a little bit of morning zoo fun <laughs> as we uh, tell everybody about Progressive. Come on. Now, I'm just bringing a, little, bringing a little of that magic energy. You know somebody mm -hmm. that always brings the magic? Jason Wildy, ESPN That's Wisconsin right. and the Athletic Packers reporter. Uh, Wildy, thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, you know, It almost feels like the top seeds – 
have been forgotten. So we want to get a little bit of a sense at this point, you know, for all of the drama of the season. When you look at the Packers right now, how good are they? Well, first of all, great to be on the wacky evening yeah. show with Spain and Fitz. Fitz, so awesome. let's go. Uh, yeah. Playing some red hot chili peppers coming up. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, first of all, I, I look, I think they're really good, and I think they're getting better when everyone else is getting more injured. I mean, it is incredible to me. I've never seen anything like this, and this is year 26 for me. Fortunately, I started when I was 12. Um, they are getting guys back at the end of the year instead of losing guys at the end of the year. Jair Alexander practiced today. Zadarius Smith practiced today. Rodgers was a full participant with that pinky toe that he's had issues with since his uh, COVID quarantine. Randall Cobb is practicing. Now, David Bakhtiari did not practice. They're a franchise left tackle, but they said that's for load management, so he's prepared for Saturday's game. Even Whitney Merciless, who we all thought, was done for the year after rupturing his biceps, is back practicing, and LaFleur said he's going to play. So they, their arrow in the health department is pointed in the absolute opposite direction of all those teams that had to play this weekend and suffered injuries because of it. Yeah, the health is certainly a big factor for them. Also, the consistency. Uh, if you can take us back, I'm trying to remember our biggest concerns about this Packers squad early on. Let's leave out all the Rodgers drama. Will he, won't he? Will he get along with everyone once he arrives, etc.? Do you remember what the weaknesses were and whether or not any of those were borne out uh, down to the end of the regular season? Well, certainly the, the biggest question was they made the change at defensive coordinator, right? So they... Right. They can't come to an agreement to bring back Mike Pettin. Uh, he leaves. They bring in Joe Barry after they had really tried to hire Jim Leonard, the defensive coordinator at Wisconsin, who is a Mike Pettin protege, played for him at a bunch of places. So they go with Joe Barry. Obviously, Matt LaFleur knew him in Los Angeles. They like that uh, scheme. It's kind of the trickle down from the Vic Fangio scheme. And for the first half of the season, you were like, wow, this is unbelievable. They're ranked third against uh, total yardage. They're third in scoring defense. They have a shutout against Russell Wilson in his first game back. And ever since then, their defense just has not been very good. There's been some deja vu to their other defenses that haven't been good enough to win a Super Bowl. And so, you know, the the biggest thing for me as I look at them getting ready for San Francisco is there's this misleading stat that they are 11th in the NFL in total run defense. They're giving up about 109 yards a game, and that looks pretty good. The problem is is that when you look at them yards per carry, which is a more accurate depiction of how their run defense has been, they're 30th, 4.7 yeah. yards a carry People that they're giving up. People just aren't trying so that, to run on them, but when they do, right. they do pretty so well. <laughs> that's the concern. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right, Sarah. That's the concern, I think, more than anything else. So, Wildy, I keep hearing t- people tell me that the 49ers make a, a bad matchup for the Packers. Do you agree? Uh, I do. I see the I see that being said on on Sports Center and Get Up all the time. I, I do agree, actually. Now, do I think it's a bad enough matchup that they're going to lose the game? I, I do not. Uh, but we all remember how and and frankly that game in in Santa Clara in Week Three kind of mirrors how the Packers' defense has been throughout the season started great Packers got off to what a 17 nothing lead and in the end the defense gave up the lead they're down 28 27 Aaron Rodgers has 37 seconds left to make magic happen they managed to do it that's before Mason Crosby had started having his kicking operation issues 
with his holder and his long snapper. He makes a 51-yard walk-off, and they win 30-28. to uh, Fast forward to now, obviously the Packers still have had some issues defensively against tight ends, which makes me think that with a limited amount of production of late from George Kittle, there's an opportunity for him to be productive. And Debo Samuel, I, I'm sorry, I don't care who is running your defense or what scheme you run, he is a challenge. And so those are both question marks, I think, in this matchup that would make me nervous for the Packers defensively. Spain and Fitz, we're talking to Jason Wilde of ESPN Wisconsin and the Athletic Packers reporter about the upcoming game. Obviously, there are questions about Jimmy G and his health. Do you think that's a negative uh, for the Packers in terms of maybe needing to prepare for both him and Trey Lance? You know, it's been interesting. They've had so many instances of this this season, and the most significant one was when they played Baltimore, and Tyler Huntley started instead of Lamar Jackson, and at least those guys were very similar players. That's obviously not necessarily the case here. Look, I I don't know. I may be the only one in this group, but Jimmy Garoppolo, to me, feels like he gets a little bit of a bum rap, and on the flip side, it feels a little bit like, Matthew Stafford, I I like Matthew Stafford. I covered him in a lot of games against the Packers. But it's almost like people view Matthew Stafford so much better than Jimmy G. And and I don't know if there's as wide of a chasm between those two guys as some people make it sound. I, I think Garoppolo, he obviously made a colossal mistake against the Cowboys. But I think the Packers know that he can be a problem for them. But the biggest key for them as opposed to the last time they played these guys in the playoffs, is make Jimmy Garoppolo throw more than eight passes. And maybe you have a Mm -hmm. chance of him making a mistake as opposed to what happened in the 2019 NFC Championship game. We're talking to Jason Wilde, ESPN Wisconsin, and the Athletic Packers reporter on Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So I've I've heard some contradicting theories on home field advantage and how much it matters, especially in a world where there's heated benches and the sidelines can be a glorious delight for anybody. Got a West Coast team (laughs) going to Lambeau. How big of a deal is all of that going to be? Well, it is going to be cold. Uh, I don't think it's going to be as cold as it was, and Sarah will get this reference. Uh, When I walked across the famous Waldron deck at Soldier Field (laughs) before watching uh, Brett Favre look in a 2007 late-season game in Chicago like he wanted to be anywhere but there, (laughs) it was also the game, frankly, that sealed the Packers' decision that we can't win because we want home field advantage and we want it to be cold and this guy can't play in the cold. And a few weeks later, what happened in the NFC Championship game? Couldn't play in the cold again at Lambeau mm-hmm. Field. So uh, I, it is going to be cold. Rogers still has no problem with the cold. Jimmy G, I think Rob Domofsky had a stat from ESPN Stats and Information. He has never thrown a pass in an NFL game when the temperature was below 40 degrees, which Whoa. is mind-boggling yeah. to me. Tropical. Uh, and it's going to be... It's going to be like 10, uh, and the wind chill by the end of the game is going to be minus 10. So that is a factor. But, look, the, the biggest factor here, and the Packers have not been perfect at Lambeau Field. They were 10-0 and going into the 2002 NFC Wild Card game, and then Michael Vick showed that you could win at Lambeau Field. They are 7-6 and at Lambeau Field since that game. But the biggest thing is last year they had 7,800 fans in the stands because of COVID, and on Saturday night they're going to have 78,000. And yeah. that will make a difference for them, but you still have to play well. Home field advantage is obviously, as you guys know, not nearly enough. 
Jason, certainly Jimmy Garoppolo looking across the way to Josh Allen, who was hearing a lot about his record in cold weather games before last weekend. Maybe not so much after seven of seven touchdowns on every single drive. Right. So uh, maybe the uh, the guesses at whether Jimmy G will fare well in his first time are, are, are simply that just guesses. Hey, before we let you go quickly, we've been talking all season about the pressure on the Packers to maybe take advantage if this is their last ride with Aaron Rodgers. Uh, how well do you think this team is doing sort of not thinking about the future so they can focus on the present? Well, they did an outstanding job of it during the regular season, but let's be honest, that's the easy time not to think of it, right? Mm -hmm. Now it's win or go home, and I don't care what Aaron Rodgers told us today on Zoom where he did not have to show off his pinky toe or anything else today. He, He said there's no pressure, and I just don't believe him. Like, he maybe handles pressure very well, but this is they're in position to go to their third straight NFC championship game. And if they can't get to the Super Bowl and something happens and they lose again either on Saturday night or in an NFC championship game at home with full crowds, you can bet there's going to be a lot of disappointment and questions about Rodgers' legacy, about how good Matt LaFleur has been as a coach, but not getting to the Super Bowl with three straight NFC championship game appearances. So there is a ton of pressure. Rodgers is great about dealing with it. I'll be curious to see if everyone on this roster can deal with it. I mean, the real question is how distracted is Devontae knowing he's coming to Vegas next year? Jason, always appreciate wow. your time. I'm, you know, I'm just I'm <laughs> wow. openly camp- campaigning, people. Let's do it. Uh, appreciate your time. Enjoy the game this weekend. Thanks for the expertise, my friend. We gave him our uh, stand-up guy award today, and I will fight you, Jason, if you try to take him away from us. <laughs> so there you go. Watch and you'll fight. probably beat me. So no, I was going to say, there's, you'll definitely beat me in a fight, but you know it's worth it if I can wear the Devontae jersey afterwards. All right. Thanks, Willie. We appreciate you. We've got right, more on the care. Packers going into the weekend, plus the great question about playoff expansion. Good or bad? We'll give you the definitive answer you need next. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We're about to give you the definitive answer. Aha, nailed it that time. Using uh, whether or not playoff expansion is good try. or bad. <laughs> She's Sarah Spain. I'm Jason Fitz. <laughs> We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Don't forget, listen to the Man in the Arena podcast. It's a 10-part series exploring how sports impacts our everyday lives through the lens of Tom Brady's career. Brought to you by ZipRecruiter and available wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you're a fan of the ESPN Plus uh, world, I've got uh, the After the Arena reaction show. Uh, you can look those up in Plus after every one of the shows. I've gotten to react to Brady. So it's like getting constantly kicked in the grape nuts over and over and over again about the tuck rule. It's really perfect. Uh, there was tons of playoff action over the course of the weekend. And one thing that we're hearing a lot now that we asked Jason Wildy about just a minute ago that I've heard Dan Orlovsky talk about is why San Francisco is just not a great matchup for Green Bay. This is what Orlovsky said on Get Up. This is a football team. If you had to sit down, and RC knows this, and write a script of how to beat the Green Bay Packers right now, every detail that would be in on that list is who the San Francisco 49ers are. I think RC phrases them the best. They are, what do you call them, unapologetically themselves, and they know themselves yeah. better than any, right? Self-aware, so, man. Exactly. So they could run the football. That's the weakness of the Green Bay defense. They got a front that could rush. They got disciplined coverage unit. They got a really speedy athletic linebacker unit and really good at the defensive tackle. And the last thing I'd say is this. 
It's the teacher versus the mentor. It's Kyle Shanahan versus Matt LaFleur. Matt LaFleur knows a lot of what he knows because of learning under Kyle Shanahan. It's a good breakdown. So what's, yeah. Go ahead, sir. I was just going to say it's a good breakdown, and the matchup, particularly on the ground, is, is what Wildy alluded to, that the Packers can boast, you know, allowing the sixth fewest rushing yards, but that's mainly because they faced the second fewest in the NFL this season. Teams were not looking to try to beat them on the ground, and when they did, they were pretty successful. So you've got Debo Samuel, you've got... Um, you know, a, a run game that has gotten them where they are. Elijah Mitchell is doing incredible things, especially from his draft spot. Um, that, to me, is is something to watch. Yeah, I also think the creativity with which the the runs are designed is worth noting. Like, Kyle Shanahan has this uh, reputation that he's earned as a, you know, genius or whatever, as the idiot mm-hmm. savant, whatever, uh, offensively. No, that's not but, it. Not idiot savant. No. Yeah, okay. It, savant, it was, but sure. Hey, football savant. Idiot savant implies savant. that you can't do anything else in life, but you can, like, you're, you're, you're a genius at one thing. Well, he, I, I don't know if Kyle, I, you know, I don't know Kyle Cooks. I don't know what else he's good at. But, you know, yes, fine. A savant when it comes to savant. football. And so, uh, but one of the things that makes that interesting is their ability to essentially design their runs in a way where you can't tell what's coming. So if you're already a team that's bad against the run, uh, yards per carry, let's say that, uh, then you're going to have to have better discipline facing the run when you don't know whether or not it's going to be a running back or a wide receiver doing it. You don't know whether it's going to be coming from the outside or the inside. You don't know whether the motion is setting up a pass or a run. Like That's what has made San Francisco so tough to defend, and credit to Kyle Shanahan because his ability to do that, I think, does put Green Bay in a bad situation. But I also think sometimes in playoff football, there are just quarterbacks you trust and quarterbacks you say, okay, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know yet. And I, I'm all in on viewing Jimmy G through a different lens at this point, but I also am all in on acknowledging that the Green Bay Packers have Aaron Rodgers, and that has to be an advantage at Lambeau. Yeah, uh, I, I, I want to speak to what you just said, which is the quarterback matters, and I think – uh, when you come, when it comes to discipline, when it comes to game situational awareness and all of that, it's a different plane for Aaron Rodgers and Dak Prescott, who, by the way, just three minutes ago posted about uh, regretting the comments he made about officiating after the officiating league uh, and union came out and, and said that he was in the wrong. So interesting timing there. But Dak and the Cowboys were the most penalized team all season. And they shot themselves in the foot repeatedly as they were getting frustrated and confused by the stunts that the Niners' defensive line was showing them. Will that still be the case? Can you hold it against the Niners that the Cowboys were so penalized and say, well, really, the Cowboys gave them the game? Or do you have to look at how the 49ers made them uncomfortable and made them make mistakes and see if you think that that may translate to them getting the, 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 uh, the, the Packers um, uncomfortable and out of control as well? That's one of the most interesting things about so many penalties is was it nature of bad discipline or was it because somebody was in a bad situation and it was, hey, I got to hold this guy or my quarterback's going to get murdered. You know, that's one of the interesting things looking back at it. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So that leads to, uh, as you think about the weekend we just had, uh, the conversation everybody's been having about seven teams in each side. Because let's face it, now that we've completed the playoff weekend, we've seen a lot of non-competitive playoff football games. And You know, I'll be the first to admit that I've stood up and said part of my concern about the concept of playoff expansion in college football is you're going to get a lot of non-competitive playoff games. But we got that over the weekend, spare a couple of games. Most of these games were blowouts that were fairly well decided by halftime. So, Sarah, now that we've seen the full body of work from one weekend, are you pro or anti the expanded format? 
I am very much pro. Uh, I think it is more interesting when more teams are in the mix. I recognize that in some sports, it's maybe a little too much, like the NBA, where you're like, that's not really a worthy team. Uh, I think the way it is now, it is still difficult to make the postseason as a football player, as a football team. And so the opportunity to have more fans invested down the stretch, what we got from the final week of the season, the last couple weeks of the season, I think was really a, a, a tribute to, to this working well. Um, so, so to me, that's a big part of it, is, is that it extended the interest for a number of teams and their fan bases. It extended the worth and value of the games uh, down the stretch of the season. And, you know, it wasn't a guarantee that a team that got blown out was one that wouldn't have been there without the expansion. That's not how it lined up this year or last, you know? Yeah, and I think that's part of what... What hits me is the importance of the first round bye is so significant. The, the importance mm-hmm. of week 17 was so significant for me personally, watching a Raiders game that would have had completely different implications if it hadn't been that much, if those things hadn't been on the line, if seven spots weren't on the line. You know, I look at all of that and think about the interest it keeps going and how many conversations we were having in week 15, in week 16, in week 17 about the possibility of teams still making the playoffs. I mean, that, to me, is the excitement you need in the back three weeks of the season because when your team is sitting there hovering around 8-8 eight and eight in a typical year, let's say 9-8 and eight now, and you know that that may not be good enough to get you into a reduced playoff, you lose some of the interest. You lose some of the appeal. Mm-hmm. As a result, how many fan bases went into that last Sunday because of the expanded playoff still saying, so you're telling me there's a chance. I think that's good for football. I think it's better for week 17 and week 18, I should say, I guess, in the season. Than maybe the playoffs itself. Than the playoffs. Yeah. 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 And Stephen Holder for The Athletic wrote a story about, and some of his numbers actually bear out what you're saying. Through two years of wildcard weekends with a number two versus a number seven, we only have four games, small sample size, but so far 0-4 record for the lower seeds, average margin of defeat of 13 points, just a single one-score game, three contests decided by double digits. Very small sample size. But if you go back 10 seasons before to what it would have looked like if they had instituted this before you would have you know clubs averaging 8.95 wins in a 16 game schedule um and you know no teams with losing records in but not a lot of great ones so yeah you know if you want to argue that you're not getting the best possible quality in the postseason i'll give you that but to your point it maybe matters more for what we get out of the regular season yeah, and then the other part of it is this was the strangest regular season I think yeah. we've ever seen. So we maybe it, we could get another year before we jump to any wild conclusions on it. Coming up, the coach of a high-profile NBA team is coaching for his job. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. A seat that has been warm for a while appears to have caught fire of late. And our next guest, breaking news on that. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Athletic Lakers writer Bill Oram joins us now. He's written a story with Sam Amick about Frank Vogel and the Lakers. Bill, tell us what you know about what happened after the Lakers' 37-point loss on Saturday. Well, Sarah, you know, Frank Vogel's job security has been in question really dating back to the summer when – uh, we reported that the Lakers had only given Frank a a one-year extension after winning the championship in 2020. It really spoke to a lack of commitment to Frank uh, 
you know, when you're talking about a championship coach who, who has, uh, you know, molded one of the top defenses in the league, the Lakers wanted to maintain their flexibility. So it did speak to this idea that maybe they weren't committed to him for the long term. It's kind of been part of the storyline of the whole season, but you fast forward to Saturday when they get spanked by 37 points in Denver and the things that the players are, are, are calling out is effort and defense. Those are two things that are you can pretty easily tie to uh, the coach. And, and so there was internally a lot more discussion, a, more, a lot more urgent discussion about whether or not they wanted to make a change. And ultimately the decision was to wait and see what happened Monday night against Utah. And, um, and they did that, and the and the Lakers responded. They, you know, had probably the win of the season, especially considering the stakes uh, for for Vogel. And um, you know, he lives to see another day, so to speak. Um, but you know, what we've been told was that that one win by no means means that he is safe for the rest of the year. You know, he continues to be evaluated. It was we were told it's you know game to game really. So for for Vogel, it's really a matter of. Um, continuing to build off that win against the Jazz, continuing to collect more wins, and basically try to survive until Anthony Davis comes back from this MCL strain that's kept him out for 14 games, and try to build some momentum and make it to the playoffs. But uh, Frank Vogel is still very much, uh, you know, being evaluated. His future is is not is not secure by any means. Bill, one of the craziest things about NBA culture is you can be coach of the year one year and fired the next. So. Uh, I <laughs> guess how would you assess at this point Frank Vogel as a head coach overall? Well, I think, you know, I've, I've written in the past about the fact that, you know, Vogel has been dealt a really tough hand this year. You know, he is a defensive coach who watched as, you know, all the top defensive players from his last couple of teams uh, were either traded away or, or let, let go or allowed to leave in free agency, uh, ergo Alex Caruso. So, um, you know, he was given a team of players like uh, Carmelo Anthony, Malik Monk, uh, Kendrick Nunn, who hasn't played um, – uh, Wayne Ellington, you know, these are guys who are, who, you know, have a history of, of success on the offensive side of the ball or, you know, Trevor Ariza, who's 37 years old. So um, it was going to be a challenge all along for him, a defensive coach to build the defensive culture in this, in his third year uh, that he'd had in the first two. And, you know, we've seen that we've seen the struggle. Um, that said, you know, the Lakers, this is not strictly a Frank Vogel problem. I mean, they have real roster issues you know, not just defensively, but in terms of balance, um, you know, they they struggled. At, you know, I think that Rob Palinka, who's the GM of the Lakers, got a lot of credit for how he managed the, uh, the the minimum contract market after the trade for Russell Westbrook. But, you know, you look at the guys the Lakers went out and signed, um, they're not necessarily the guys who are contributing and helping the Lakers um, in the biggest moments. You look at last night's win against the Jazz, the guys, the role players who really stepped up were, uh, Avery Bradley, Stanley Johnson, and Austin Reeves. Well, Austin Reeves was an undrafted rookie who was on two-way contract until the start of training camp. Avery Bradley wasn't on the team until the day before um, opening day, and uh, Stanley Johnson's on a 10-day contract right now. So in terms of what the Lakers tried to do in the summer, you know, a lot of those pieces haven't really performed like the Lakers expected. Um, so, you know, so when you talk about Frank Vogel, that's kind of the hand he's been dealt. So you know, you can you can point to some rotations. You can point to um, you know his commitment to you know certain players. But from a coaching standpoint, I think it's really hard to, to pin this season on him, unless the determination is made that the top players, LeBron James, Russell Westbrook, Anthony Davis, are no longer buying into what he's saying. And if that's the case, then then there's really no defense anymore of not making a change because 
um, you know, you, you need, you need somebody to be able to get the message across to your top players. And I think that's what the Lakers are trying to weigh right now. Bill Oram, the athletic Lakers writer is with us here on Spain and Fitz. Uh, his article with Sam Amick is up on the athletic right now. If you want to read more about the near firing after that loss on Saturday and the current evaluation going on, you know, that's what I was going to ask you about is whether this roster is the issue. And I think everybody agrees it is. But if you're at this point of the season, you have whatever thing, whatever you could try to get done at the trade deadline in order to change the pieces. And then maybe is the problem that Frank Vogel will end up being the sacrificial lamb of just needing a different voice in the room. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, the where it's at. This Sarah, this season's gone so far off the rails from where the Lakers hope to be. I mean, listen, you know, you got, the Lakers are 22 and 22 right now, 500. They're past the midway point of the season. Like you said, the trade deadline is appro- approaching. This is not just a team that was trying to be good. You know, they tore down last year's team. Uh, you know, a, a team that was you know number two in the in the West before LeBron had a, a serious ankle sprain and was still favored by the way to beat the Suns in the first round and led that series two to one before Anthony Davis got hurt. They, they basically tore that team down in the name of adding a third star in Russell Westbrook. And you do that, you only do a move like that because you believe it makes you, it gets you even closer to being a championship contender. It makes you more of a, of a title team. And the Lakers clearly have not yet shown the signs of a team that is closer to a title. In fact, they look quite a bit further from that. So, um, you know, at some point, you know, heads roll in, in, in sports, right? There, there, there becomes – uh, you know, scapegoats for, for poor performances. Um, you know, Rob Palinka, the GM, is obviously not going to start by pointing fingers at the roster construction. You've got a coach who's on a you know pretty favorable contract if you're the organization, um, and it kind of becomes the card you can play to try to you know uh, to try to resuscitate this season. Um, you know, the question is, do they have somebody on the bench who they think is going to be better? This is not a case like last year when they had Jason Kidd, somebody they really valued, who obviously uh, is, is now a head coach in the NBA with Dallas. Um, I don't know that they have a voice on that bench that they view as, as really the, um, the great voice of change. But if, if they feel like it's gotten this, this stagnant, um, they might just be ready to um, roll the dice with, with either Phil Handy or David Fisdale if, if, if the performances that they get over the next few games more closely mirror what they got in Denver as opposed to what happened on Monday night against Utah. To your point, Bill, this team was assembled before last year to be great and to win championships. That obviously isn't happening. If we today sat down and set the new expectation for this roster as it stands, what should be the expectation for this Lakers team? Well, I'm not really a fan of moving the goalposts uh, with with – the team because I mean this is you know you have LeBron James and with LeBron James and especially another top 10 12 talent in Anthony Davis you should be um, a serious title contender every single season and the Lakers are positioned to fall short of that for the second straight year but if you if, if you're trying to you know if you're trying to you know take an optimistic look at this roster you know they're probably not going to make the they're probably not going to have any home court advantage in, in the playoffs um, they you know are currently I believe seventh in the West. Um, they are, you know, outside of uh, the seven and a half games out of home court. You know, there's a scenario where they get to sixth, they get to, you know, fifth in the West, maybe, um, and, and they get a favorable matchup. Uh, maybe, you know, Memphis is still a young team, although they look phenomenal. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I would favor the Lakers against a Memphis or certainly a Utah, but 
you know, maybe they've got a shot in one of those series and they get to the second round. But at this point, it's really hard to look at the Lakers based on what we've seen, based on the mm-hmm. evidence we have this season, and, and really to project them winning a playoff series whatsoever and certainly not getting past, you know, the second round or to a Western Conference Finals. Now, yeah, we've not seen... Only- yeah, I would say not only have they underperformed expectations, but now they're changing future expectations for folks like Anthony Davis, whose ceiling looks a bit lower for many and doesn't look like even the future for the team that they had planned. Uh, there is a, This is a fluid situation, Bill. We know that we are going to keep having to monitor what the coaching situation looks like over there and the levels of panic, but we appreciate you coming on and give us, giving us your insight, and, and it's a great story. Thanks so much. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. You can go check it out on The Athletic. He's written it with Sam Amick. Headline is, Sources, Lakers coach Frank Vogel's job in serious jeopardy despite Jazz win. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Save when you bundle auto, home, or motorcycle insurance. Visit Progressive.com. Coming up, we got some more NBA stories to get to. We'll do it in quickies. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, letting it breathe. It's been a while. been a while since I listened to this jam. Wow. Appreciate you see it. the festival that was announced today? No. That yeah, there's a like so every angst-ridden uh, you oh know, in Vegas 90, late early two thousands uh, punk rock fan uh, all in on this festival that I, I actually looks quite delightful. But it's only because you know my my girl Avril, call me Avril, uh, was tweeting about yeah, it today. She's I did on see it. But, it. Yeah, I, I don't mean, think that I, think I don't should... think Arrested Development would qualify, but. Uh, no, no, no. Did make you a just, musical you said jam, right. and it made me think of like right. old, old people jams. listening to music. Yes. So I think it's no. uh, Dashboard Confessional, Avril Lavigne, yeah. Bright Eyes, yeah, My Jimmy Chemical World. Romance. I think stuff like that. Yeah, yeah Paramore. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was Good more stuff. just thinking about how it's you know, and it's like I haven't listened to this jam in forever. Made me think of you know. I got it. Yeah, yeah. I'm with festivals. you now. I'm with you now. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, (laughs) taking a detour into the music of our past on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Don't try to guess how old we are or ask or Google it. We're 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 just we're just uh, old at heart. Uh, You know know, that that's that's what it is. Um, We talked to um, a reporter about the Lakers last segment about you know the Frank Vogel situation. I think very honestly, this was a difficult position to put any coach in because that roster is not well suited for the current NBA. Um, and, and I wonder if it's if you think the right move for them is to bring in a new voice, or do you think that they need to recognize that the only changes need to be made at the trade deadline? Unfortunately, I, the easy change is to change the coach to change the coach out. But as you pointed out before, so much of this roster is going to be whatever LeBron wanted it to be through this whole process, which is interesting because now it's like, well, the roster is not good enough. Let's change the coach, and LeBron will get to pick the coach. And I, I'm not faulting. Yeah. Uh, And this isn't an anti-LeBron rant. It's just the reality of what the Lakers are facing. Like, if AD and LeBron aren't both on the floor playing lights out, then no matter who's around them, they're not any good. And they haven't had those two guys together at any level that they could actually rely on. So it feels like this is, in that sense, very predictable that we're here. But you're not going to be able to make enough moves for them to be able to change that part of it uh, when it comes down to just those two players' health. So I think the easy thing to do is to make Vogel the scapegoat and say, okay, we'll change coaches and then we'll keep uh, presuming that we can find a new way to fire everybody up. Yeah, I think I think wrong or right um, at this point, if LeBron James decides that Frank Vogel is the problem or if LeBron James decides that the way for this team to reboot is a different voice, then you got to do it. Whether that's whether that's just reinforcing what got you here, which is letting him dictate the 
the the roster decisions and the coaches and everything. Uh, whether that's adding to the problem, you kind of have to do it anyway because you're not going anywhere with this team if LeBron's at odds with the coach or if he's already decided that the team can't success have success with Frank Vogel. It's Bain and Fitz. Uh, we got other NBA stuff to get to besides the Lakers, though, and let's do that the way we do it around here. Quickly! Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Kyrie Irving uh, talking again. Our buddy Nick Friedel now covering the Nets out in New York and had a bit of a back and forth with him. Now that Kevin Durant is going to miss significant time with that knee injury, it had Nick asking Kyrie if he plans on getting the vaccine now, making himself available for his team more regularly uh, now that they are out one of their superstars. Here's a little bit of what Kyrie said. Do you feel any more to change your stance because Kevin's going to be out potentially for a couple months and the team needs you? See, that's, that's what I feel like uh, ends up coming into uh, a lot of this culture of basketball and, and sports and entertainment is you bring in the team and you bring in situations that we're in and Kev, Kev's going to heal. Kev's going to be okay. You know, and we're going to have to deal with that as his teammates. But in terms of where I am with my life outside of this, I I stay rooted in in my decision. And that's just what it is. Fitz, he points to he starts going down a road that I think he realizes is ill-fated when he says that's the problem in sports. Like you always start talking about team and, and the group. And what he wants to say is, this is my individual decision that is solely about me, and I don't care what's best for the team. Now, what, rather right, right or wrong, sometimes we do force actions that are bad for people because of a tribal or a team mindset. But that's what he wanted to say. And then he goes on in that conversation and back and forth with Nick later to say, I'm only a basketball player part of the time. Most of the time, I'm out in the world as a human being. And normally I would say, absolutely, that's correct. Basketball is your job, and it's a pl- privilege, and it's a pleasure, and you get paid a lot, and you're famous, etc. but you're a human being, and you need to do what's best for you. Unfortunately, that also follows along the lines of, I want to do what's right for me, not the team, not the group, not the greater good, not all the human beings around me. And as much as Kyrie and plenty of other athletes will try to tell us in certain moments, I'm just like you. I'm just a regular, everyday person. I'm a human being, not a basketball player. He will also completely ignore that that requires him to be a part of a larger humanity that he threatens and everybody else who's unvaccinated threatens by continuing to be selfish. And no matter how many times they go in a loop on this, I know his answer is not going to change. I just think, you know... It, it, that that he was he was about to reveal what he thinks about the team concept and the idea of individual individuality versus the greater good there before he stopped himself. I think he's also dug in on that, right? Like it feels like it's pot committed to that's the angle. The angle's always been I'm going to do what's best for me and my body and the decision that I made based on what I've decided, and I'm not sure anything could possibly change that. You know, you can't. You can't necessarily if if you're Kyrie and you've dug in on that. Now somebody gets hurt. Now you're like, well, I guess I'll turn around and do it. It would take a total change in mindset that we've never seen from him. So I don't know why we would expect that. Like it, it, to me, Kyrie is just being the same Kyrie he's been through this whole process, and he refuses to see it any other way because he's made up his mind that this is what he wants to do for him, and he's going to put that ahead of everything else. And so I'm not sure any answer other than that wouldn't force him to backtrack, and that would take not only a change in stance, but also a swallowing of pride that I I think would be very difficult for a lot of people. 
Yeah, it's pain and fits. I, I, and I think I agree with you. And that's part of the issue with whether it's Aaron Rodgers or Kyrie or Cole Beasley or anyone is it's become so divisive, so politicized, so aligned with identity instead of choice. And what we know from all of the research on people's decision making, um, they align with who they believe themselves to be in a way that's connected to their identity and not just their habits or their choices. Like that's why there's all those campaigns where they say I'm a voter instead of I voted because they believe they're more likely to influence people if they can identify themselves as a voter instead of the act of voting. And I think with this anti-vax movement, with Kyrie's determination to not be moved on it, he has decided that I am this person. I am this person who's willing to argue against the round earth. I am this person who wants to make vague Illuminati references. I am this person who wants to tell you I know better about my body than the experts. I am this person who is willing to sit out of basketball for any number of reasons, actually, of late in his career, not just because of vaccination rules. And I am this person who is willing to tell you that basketball doesn't define me, which would be admirable if it wasn't so selfish and ignorant. Well, and that's exactly the last part of it. Like, on the one hand, I want to look at it and say, God, I love the individuality of stepping up and saying, this is what I stand for and this is who I am. But then I'm conflicted by seeing all of that and realizing how it doesn't match or align with everything else. So that's the right. hardest part about it. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of those people who think they know better than everyone else fall into these traps, and that's, I think, what we're seeing. We got more to get to on Kyrie, and we also have another NBA story. We're going to get to that a little bit later, but first, we're checking up on a team that's mysterious to us, the Titans. Who are the Titans? Coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I told you earlier, I feel like we've forgotten about some of the top overall seeds. So we're going to get some insight on the other number one overall seed that we haven't talked about yet, Tennessee Titans. To do that, we're joined now by Teron Davenport, ESPN NFL Nation Titans reporter. TD, thanks for the time, man. Uh, let's start with the, uh, with the matchup. you got the Bengals coming uh, to Nashville to take on the Titans. How do you like this matchup for Tennessee? Yeah, I think it's a really good matchup for the Titans. Actually, just from this perspective, Joe Burrow was the most sacked quarterback in the NFL this past season, 51 sacks. And I think when you look at what the Titans are able to do with that front, right, with Jeffrey Simmons, Danico Autry especially, a very under-the-radar outstanding defender. Then you look at Bud Dupree and Harold Landry. These guys are able to get pressure with just that four. And when you're able to do that, you could drop seven, and that helps you out in coverage. I don't know about matching up to that man-to-man, but you could go zone and do some different things and just rely on those guys up front to get pressure. And I think that's why it's really a good matchup for them. Let's talk about Derrick Henry and expectations. First, you have him coming off an injury, so you have to think physically what he's able to do. But, you know, Bill Barnwell on ESPN Daily a couple weeks ago and again on our show just after that uh, offered up the controversial opinion that he might not even offer much of a bump, that he had a massive workload, but his efficiency had gone down significantly. How do you expect him to show up in this game? Well, I don't expect him to be the same type of Derrick Henry that he was before the injury, at least not in this first game. But still, just having him in that lineup, it it does a lot for that offense as a whole. And when you look at the passing game, I mean, obviously, initially as a linebacker, you're looking at what the offensive line is doing. They're going to be your first read. But when you have a guy like 22 in the backfield, the linebackers are going to 
commit a little bit more to the run just because of what he brings. And I think when you look at that, that's an uplifting part of the the whole picture. Again, I don't think he's going to be the same type of uh, home run hitter. But, I mean, we're talking about a guy who I I call a Martian, right? I'm not sure that he's from here, this planet. Mm -hmm. So you never know what it is that he's going to bring to the table. And, uh, I mean, I've seen him do things abnormal uh, before. We're talking to Teron Davenport, ESPN NFL Nation, Titans reporter, Spain and Fitz. Uh, I want to go back to something you mentioned a minute ago, too, because it's interesting to me, the ability to get after the Bengals with just your front four. I would argue that that was what the Raiders went in trying to accomplish, and it mm-hmm. really worked. Mm-hmm. Was there a blueprint in your mind from some of that because of the similarities in their defenses? Yeah, you know, I think really the b- blueprint, Jason, was was set back when they played the Chiefs, and they were able to consistently get after Patrick Mahomes with just that four, and they just clouded up the middle of the field. They went a lot of too high and just made the Chiefs just, uh, you know, play, um, you know, not be able to get explosive plays. And I think that's something that you want to be able to do. And and the good thing about that uh, kind of uh, uh, sending four, you know, rushing four, dropping seven, you could go like a quarters kind of look and just use your your safeties to – you, you know, read, run, and, and come down and give you some run support. But obviously the play action, you know, that puts you at a little bit of a bind. But I think when you have rangy guys like Kevin Byard and Amani Hooker, you can, you, you know, uh, not have that box stacked and still be able to adequately defend the run. Spain and Fitz, we're talking to Deron, Teron Davenport about the Titans. You know, I know Fitz has done some of his uh, ESPN Radio sports beats about cranky Titans fans who don't think they're getting <laughs> talked about enough, not getting enough credit. This is a number one seed that I think a lot of people don't necessarily believe in. And I go back to Bill Barnwell telling us that, you know, Football Outsiders DVOA ranks them as the worst number one or number two seed ever going back through 2008. Is there any indication that this team feels like there's something to prove or that they're hearing any of the doubts? How are they reacting to maybe being such an undersold number one? Yeah, they don't really care about that stuff. And that's one of the things I think they do really well is being concerned about what's inside of their building. And uh, they could care less. I mean, they hear it. And it, it, it does, like, give them a little bit of an extra uh, spike. You know, they, they like the us-against-the-world type of mindset. You know, Jeffrey Simmons has mentioned that so many times this year. And I, I give those those guys credit, right? Like, they try to use things to give them added motivation. And uh, I, I think overall, like, it, it, they don't really care about it. You just mentioned Simmons, by the way. Let's just remind everybody, Rob, from the Pro Bowl again. We're talking to Ron Davenport, ESPN yeah. NFL Nation Titans reporter, So all of this comes back in my mind to, at some point, Mike Vrabel, who I think came into this year with a little bit of pressure because the defense hadn't performed as well last year. Now we've seen this massive turnaround. Give me your assessment on the job that Vrabel has done this year with this team. Yeah, I I think that's a good point to mention that there was pressure because of how the defense performed last year. And he's a defensive guy. Uh, I think he's the coach of the year, though. I'm a little bit biased not because I have a horse in the race, but because I got to watch him do some of the things that I haven't seen head coaches do before. This is the the fourth or fifth team that I've covered. And I've never seen a head coach go from defensive tackle and show them technique to linebackers to show them technique to wide receivers and drop a gem with them. And they go to the offensive line and, and just keep going throughout the whole 
roster. I, I mean, there there were times where I literally followed him from position to position and, and chimed, like listened in to to hear, you know, what he was dropping on them, and it was beneficial stuff. So I think that right there is big time. But then also you have to look at uh, what this team has been able to do. I mean, Derrick Henry, Bud Dupree, uh, A.J. Brown, uh, who else? Julio Jones. You know, this is a who's who of people that have been missing, but they still managed to be the top seed in the AFC. So I don't care what any of these anacronyms or anything like that tell you. Uh, I think that the fact that they are the top seed, you are what your record is, and they have plenty of quality wins. I think the fact that they did that without a lot of the guys that they have missing, I think that right there is true reason for him to be uh, coach of the year. Then not to mention this this team rostered 93 different players on game day. That's not a season. That's that's an NFL record. Like that's not the most in in, in the league this year. It's the most in the league ever. Yeah. Tron Davenport talking Titans with us. I think we've replaced the uh, is, is Matt Ryan elite uh, with uh, mm-hmm. is is uh, Ryan Tannehill good. Uh, that feels like a conversation that's <laughs> happening everywhere. And I wonder, uh, what do you think needs to be done by T- Tannehill in this game for this to be a success? H- how well does he have to play? What does he have to do for them to win? Yeah, I think he has to to play a game similar to what he did in the last two weeks of the season. And, I mean, a lot of attention, rightfully so, has been put on Derrick Henry coming back. But make no mistake about it, they need to be able to make plays in the air. And those opportunities aren't going to come often because I, I highly doubt Tannehill would throw the ball over 30 times, if that. But that's the the kind of gift that you get with Ryan Tannehill. He is able to make big plays happen with limited opportunities. And I I really like the way he pushes the ball down the field. I like the way he takes shots and trusts his guys, A.J. Brown. to to, And even the last game, you saw him uh, go to Racy McMath, just kind of throw it up there. And Racy McMath, we're, we're talking about, you know, a day three pick that, uh, you know, doesn't really get a lot of burn. But he said, well, we're going to make a play today. And that's what he attempted to do. So uh, Tannehill just has to uh, not turn the football over. That's the biggest thing. Uh, he he has to not do that. And he's done a good job of limiting those uh, uh, turnovers, the interceptions and things like that. So uh, just, man, get the ball to A.J. Brown, Julio Jones, Anthony Ferkser, and be effective in the red zone. Make plays when he has to with his legs. That's another thing that people don't look at. He has seven rushing touchdowns, which was the second most among all quarterbacks, mm. second to uh, Jalen Hurts. So. Yeah. By the way, I, of course, meant is Joe Flacco a lead. I don't know why my brain broke and inserted that line. I'm sure we've discussed <laughs> no, that, right. too. But Joe Flacco being a lead is clearly the one that we continued to go to. <laughs> uh, be- before it's we cool. let you we get out of right here, with TV, it. <laughs> that's right. Like, there, is a, there is a at least a mindset that, the stadium isn't always the biggest home field advantage. I'm trying to say that very nicely for mm. Titans fans so they don't get my medgies. You've been around yeah, it a lot this be year. Careful. Too late. Well, I know, I know. They're going to come at me. Uh, <laughs> you've been there a lot this year. What kind of home field advantage do you think the Titans will have in this game? Hey, Fitz, I'm not going to let you put me on their table. <laughs> it's not happening. <laughs> All right, there we no, go. No, real That's talk. What... I mean, they're 6-2 this year. I, I, I will say this. It, it hasn't just been a home field advantage. It, it's been... Like even just different games that that uh, road games, the way that these fans have turned out, uh, I mean they've really taken to this team, and it, it's I think it is going to be a home field advantage. And I mean you could hear it getting loud 
when that defense is on the field and, and those guys are really, they pull off of that. You know, Kevin Byer told me that, you know, they, they like how it's, how it's so loud and they like how that makes it tough for the offense to communicate and do the things that, that they need to do in order to check and, and do, uh, you know, make, make different plays happen. I, I think it's going to be a home field advantage. And, and let me tell you something, man, and, and, and Fitz, you know, the, the only other name that was, was chanted, you know, besides Eddie George's name was Derrick Henry. So when 22 comes out there and that Henry Henry chant gets going and he just gets the ball and just has a clear lane for five yards, that place is going to erupt. And, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a definite advantage. You guys can follow him on Twitter at T Davenport underscore NFL, doing great work covering the Titans as always. We appreciate your, your insight, my friend. Thanks, Ron. Yeah, for sure. All right, go Bears. <laughs> Don't forget, tune into the ESPN Daily Podcast. Go brings you a deep bears. dive into a single story from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily, available wherever you enjoy your podcast. Coming up, we'll get you some thoughts from Mike Golick Jr. on Kyrie that had us thinking. We'll respond to those, plus some comments made by an NBA owner you have to hear. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain. Jason Fitz were presented by Progressive Insurance. Interesting controversies happening around the NBA. And, you know, these things find their way to media all the time. But sometimes you have important people with platforms that speak. And when they speak, you wonder what the hell they're thinking. And that has happened when it comes to the Golden State Warriors. As uh, one of their minority owners, Chamath Paliapatia, was on his podcast. I should point this out. This is his podcast called the All In Technology Podcast. He's the co-host of it. And he was asked specifically on the podcast about the NBA and their concern over international human rights issues. This is what he had to say. Nobody cares about. Let's be honest. Nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs. Okay, you you bring it up because you really what? care, and I think what that's do you mean nice that you cares? care. The rest of us don't care. I'm just well, telling you a very care? hard. Wait, wait, I'm you're telling you, a you very, personally don't care. I'm telling you a very hard, ugly truth. Okay, of all the things that I care about, yes, it is below my line. Okay, oh, of all the things that's... that I care about, it is below my line. Yeah, Fitz. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, maybe have vaguely heard some of the con- conflicts uh, between the NBA's interests in China and their treatment of the Uyghur Muslim population there. Um, the the human rights atrocities, the uh, genocide that's occurring is the kind of stuff that if we saw it up in our faces regularly and if we as Americans had to be forced to reconcile uh, going about our day while truly understanding the realities of these atrocities, it would be much more difficult. The, the vast separation between us and China, uh, cultural differences you know, being concerned with all of the issues that we have on everyday basis has sort of kept this at a distance. But those who are really informed have been very vocal for the NBA, ESPN as well, and for our various interests out there and why we would continue to work with a government and a country that is that is doing this, doing these things. And for for Chamath Paliapatia to make that statement and reiterate it. It wasn't a one-off. It wasn't flippant. He has made a statement after the after the, after the kind of blow-up of this, trying to act as though there was simply context needed. But when you listen to that, 
He is flat out saying he doesn't care. He didn't even say it's awful, but I have so many other things I'm concerned about that I just haven't invested myself enough in really looking into it. Or there's so many things plaguing me that that's not something that I have time for. He just said, I don't care. And now the Warriors themselves have had to release a statement saying that he does not speak on behalf of the franchise, that his views are not reflective of the organization, and that he doesn't work in the day-to-day operations. Um, His clarification didn't help. Yeah, well, and I love the fact that they were clear, the Warriors were clear in their statement that he is a limited investor mm. who has no day-to-day operations function. So they're, they're already distancing him. But then in his statement, he says, and I love this, in re-listening to this week's podcast, I recognize that I come across as lacking empathy. No, no, no good, sir. You don't come across as lacking empathy. Right. You simply lack empathy. There's a difference in all of this. And, you know, when you listen to what he had to say, one of the things that's stunning to me is just sort of not even realizing that when you're hosting your own technology podcast with your own audience and you are a part owner of an NBA team, you have to understand that when you speak about issues that the league has had controversy around, there will be constant conversation. No different than if I have my own side podcast and somebody asks me about ESPN. I have to understand that my words will carry a different level of weight there because people know my involvement with the company. I don't understand how someone with his platform doesn't understand what he can speak flippantly about and what he can't speak flippantly about because walking this back feels so disingenuous at this point. Right, Fitz, there's the initial issue, which is why are you flippant? Why do you say something like, I think it's nice that you really care, the rest of us don't? Why do you say that in the first place? And secondarily, why are you not aware of the outcome this will have for you as a public person and with your role uh, on on, on the Warriors' ownership? Um, I I do think also, just quickly, because I want to get to Kyrie, he, he... he touches on something that is an unfortunate reality, and he calls human rights violations on a global scale a luxury belief. The idea that we have so much in our own backyard that looking at other countries and trying to get involved in the human rights atrocities over there is a luxury belief. There is some truth to that, in that we would lose our minds if we every single day really deeply thought about all of the awful things going on in our own city, in our state, in our country, in our continent, in the world. But that does not excuse the tone that he took in speaking about it, nor does it provide any context to what he was trying to say, which is not just, I don't have time for that or it's not my priority, but I don't care. It's nice that you do, but we don't. I think it's really hard to, to backtrack from no matter what kind of statement he tries to make after that. Yeah, especially the, the phrase, no one cares. Like That also right. speaks to the circle that you're with. I, I have so many problems with it. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio now. The other thing that we mentioned earlier was Kyrie Irving has been asked if he would reconsider his stance uh, about vaccination, considering the injury to Kevin Durant. And when you think about that, uh, it it raises some interesting topics and conversations. We heard uh, Mike Golick Jr. earlier today on Kenny and Golick Jr. when he said this about why Kyrie would even reconsider his stance. As we sit here now. In a year where the Brooklyn Nets started the season saying, based on the values that we hold dear here at the Brooklyn Nets, we're not going to allow someone to participate half in and half out on this team. We believe in togetherness and blah, blah, blah. And then they let Kyrie back to do this on his terms. If I'm him, I'm wondering why I got to change what I do either. Because everything that he has done so far has been rewarded by this organization because he's really good at basketball. And I'm sure he thinks, why is that going to stop now just because Kevin's going to be out for a couple months? there's a part of me that gets what he's going for, which is to say that Kyrie has been able to have his cake and eat it too, at least of late. He did miss 
tons of games. He did suffer great public ridicule and, and criticism for his decision not to play. His reputation, his love for basketball, all of that has been questioned. Um, but in the end, he's out there playing now in the limited capacity that he's legally allowed based on the rules of, of, of various states. Um, I just don't extrapolate it any further than that because I don't think waiting around is going to allow any different behavior from the Warriors. They've gone to the extent that they can. The thing that is now restricting Kyrie is those rules in those states, not anything the Warriors have any say over. So he could sit around and hope that the laws change or that our pandemic handling changes in New York and other places. But I don't think that there is any indication that the Warriors have any other choice than to just deal with whatever his decision is at every turn. Yeah, it's that's the interesting part about it. Like, I, I understand what Mike is saying. I just don't know what else we can expect anybody in this process to do. Like, there's at some point, you just got to look at it and say, okay, we're only going to let him play the away games because we're allowed to. But to your point also, like, if New York doesn't change the rules, it's not like suddenly the Nets can do something different. So I, yeah. it's it's a very difficult situation to be in from a team standpoint because I would love for them to have a way to hold them to a different standard. I just don't know that I see that standard there and available. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.